You may have heard the account from church history of the conversion of Augustine of Hippo. After a period of wrestling with his fleshly desire, actually a long period of time, he heard a child's voice. They were playing a game and they were chanting and the chant went, pick up and read or take up and read. And so he had a copy of the scriptures near him and he picked up and he had the scriptures fall open to Romans 13 and he read there, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And he knew God was speaking to him directly. Immediately he surrendered his life, um, thereby confirming his mother's many, many prayers for him surrendering his life to Jesus Christ, and he was converted to Christianity. And the Western church was uh, never the same again because he ended up being one of its great theologians. There are millions of true conversion stories throughout church history, including people, amazing people that are converted to Christianity today who were former atheists or who were Buddhists or were Muslims, and now they've come to faith in Jesus Christ. They've been converted, and they have their testimony. They have their story. You have a testimony, I hope. I have a testimony as well. Um, We better have one because Jesus said, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3. Now, our stories are not the same. They're all different. But even though they're different in drama, uh, we still hold in common the fact that we were converted to follow Jesus Christ. That's something we all share. We all have different backgrounds, but they're backgrounds that we decided to leave behind. We looked at the former life We looked at whatever we worshiped before, whatever we pursued before, whatever got us excited before, and we said, that's not worthy for life. That's not something I want to continue to pursue. And we left that behind, and we were converted to follow Jesus Christ. We came to drink of the same fountain of life. Some of you probably were converted out of agnosticism or materialism or atheism, some out of Buddhism or Hinduism maybe even Islam or Judaism or some false form of Christianity, and there are a number of false forms of Christianity, even cults that are out there. Or some of you may have been converted, kind of like I was, that just basically living for self, living for the world, living for one's own fleshly enticements, and you were brought to a like precious faith in Christ. Praise God, right? You went through that conversion. Having been converted, it is incumbent upon us to understand our conversion, to understand what happened to us because that forms the basis for the testimony that we bear when we go out and talk to others about how Christ changed our lives. Well, in God's providence, today we begin an inquiry into religious conversion and, of course, particularly Christian conversion. In our study of the book of Acts, we've arrived at a great text for this analysis. I believe it's going to benefit us to not zip through it, but go through it in a thorough sense because it's such a vital topic. Studying our conversion helps us to examine our own conversion. Are we truly saved? And by studying conversion, our own conversion, we might gain greater assurance, and that brings us greater peace. Studying conversion helps us to discern the difference between true conversions and false conversions. Some people think they're converted when they're not. Some people are, are not sure they're converted, and they actually are. And knowing the distinction between a true and a false conversion, I think, is pretty important. It also helps us to refute secular ideas of religious conversion. Whenever the the secular academic world studies religious conversion, they bring certain assumptions to the task, and we want to uh, dispel those assumptions, and we want to look at what's actually happening because we think we understand it better than they do. It also helps us to understand the human component of conversion, what are we responsible for, and then the divine component of conversion, what does God do, putting those two things together because the Scriptures speak of both. 
With these outcomes in mind, we turn today to Acts chapter 9, getting back into our study of Acts, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9. You'll get so much more out of any of the messages here at Hope Bible Church if you follow along as we read and as we preach. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the quintessential conversion story in the Bible. I mean, if you want to study conversion story, this is it. Along with the prodigal son, which we read for our scripture reading, who returned to those wide open arms of the father who said, kill the fattened calf and let's celebrate. My son is now alive. And along, I would say, with the Philippian jailer who was about to take that sword and ram it through him because he thought his prisoners had escaped and he was going to commit suicide and realized they hadn't escaped. And so he cried out, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You don't get any more dramatic of a conversion story than this. I mean, Jesus himself appears in blazing glory and to use the King James wording, he says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? I mean, this is, this is really dramatic. Here, Saul, and you know his Roman name, which was Paul, experienced the very last of all of the Christophanies in the New Testament times. That is, the physical appearances of Jesus Christ to chosen eyewitnesses to bear the testimony of his resurrection from the dead to the people of Israel and to the Gentiles. And he did this in broad daylight by beholding a brilliant light, brighter than the sun, as it is described when the story is retold in Acts chapter 26 and verse 13. This sudden and unexpected Christophany impacted Paul both spiritually and physically. He would never be the same. It forever changed his life. This one boom, this one flash, this one moment in his life. Heightening the drama even more is the drastic change that occurred to Paul himself. Acts 9 opens with Paul violently persecuting the church of Jesus. Acts 9 closes with Paul being persecuted for the same name, Jesus. A total turnaround. In his own writing, Paul records the wonder that people expressed at his conversion. Everyone was talking about his conversion because it was so dramatic. Galatians 1.23, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. I mean, you can't get a greater reversal than that. The turnaround in his life was a 180-degree turn. Saul went from heartily approving of Stephen's death by stoning somewhere around A.D. 32 and 33 to 33 years later awaiting his head to be chopped off in Rome for the exact same reason that Stephen died. Talk about a turnaround in his life. That is a conversion. David Peterson in the Pillar New Testament commentary writes this of Paul. On the road to Damascus, the arch-persecutor met the glorified Lord Jesus and was transformed. So important is this event that Luke gives three versions of it in chapter 22 and chapter 26 as well. 
the turning of a Pharisaic persecutor into a Christian apologist and missionary is a paradox so profound that it requires multiple retellings. This event brings him to Christ and makes him, quote, a chosen instrument destined to carry Christ's name, quote, before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, end quote. Dr. Pohill in the New American Commentary also recognizes the significance of Saul's conversion, and he writes this, it would be hard to overestimate the significance of Paul's conversion, not only for the subsequent narrative of Acts, but for the history of Christianity as a whole. That's right. It's hard to overestimate this. In fact, some people call Saul's conversion the single most important event in church history after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to form the church. That's pretty powerful. His life and his ministry launched the entire Gentile mission from chapters 13 and 14 and beyond, which you and I are a part of. Raise your right hand if you are a Gentile. (laughs) That's most of you guys. You are here because God used Paul to launch the Gentile mission and everyone before you and before that and before that and before that in all the lands, in all the nations around the world. If you thought the Ethiopian eunuch's conversion to Christ was strategic in chapter 8 of Acts, the impact of Saul's conversion is 10,000 times more. Unlike the Ethiopian eunuch, although, who had some character qualities and some virtue of coming to Israel to worship the true God, to seek the true God, with Saul, he has no virtues at all. He's ravaging the church. Saul is the perfect example of what Stephen had indicted the Jews as they were stoning him or about to stone him, saying, you are stiff-necked and you are uncircumcised in heart. Remember that from chapter 7, verses 51 and 52? That was Saul. And though Paul starts as a Jew in chapter 9, and he ends up still as a Jew, and some people therefore deny that he had a conversion because they're not understanding the kind of conversion, right? Wait a minute, if you start a Jew and you end a Jew, how is it that you're converted? Because he was converted to who? To Jesus, Messiah, Messiah, King. He's now understanding that he was following a false form of Judaism, and he stepped into the true form of Judaism. And that's true for people today. Jews today are following a false form of Judaism. They need to come to Christ. They can remain a Jew, but now they will choose the true form of Judaism that God has designed for them. Furthermore, this account is simultaneously a description of Paul's conversion, but also a description of Paul's calling or commission to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's actually both, conversion and calling and commission. They both occur at the same time. In fact, Paul will always look back on this one experience on the road to Damascus that would define his life's calling, such as in 1 Corinthians 9.1, where he has to write to the Corinthians who were testing his apostleship, and he said, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Yes, he had. Yes, he was an apostle, and yes, he'd seen Jesus. Where? On the road to Damascus. That's where. Now, listen. Our conversion story, probably not quite as dramatic, right? Doesn't have to be, does it? It does have to be just as genuine, though. You can't have a disingenuous conversion and expect God to count that as real. You have to have a real, genuine conversion. And like I said, you can grow up in the church... You can be in the church week after week. You can serve in the church and not be truly converted. So evaluate yourself. Now, the skeptical and more liberally minded atheists and psychologists and sociologists who feign a study in a scientific manner have an erroneous view of religious conversions. They have a way of categorizing religious conversions as a purely natural thing. They start with that assumption. They start with, well, there's not a God, 
and there's not a spirit world. So whatever's going on when someone transfers from one religion to another is a purely what? It's a psychological or sociological phenomenon, right? And so they end up with the conclusion that they start with, right? So that's hardly scientific. That's hardly probing to understand what actually is happening to this person. They have a purely materialistic approach to understanding human beings. So they arrive at the conclusion with which they had to arrive at because they started with their conclusion. That's not science. That's not objective. That's not an appropriate way of understanding religious conversions. These self-styled social scientists portray themselves as objective, but don't buy it. Their starting point is not science. Their starting point is a philosophical commitment to materialism, the denial of the spiritual component in human existence. When you test their theories, you can see that they only explain part of the conversion experience anyway. They can never explain all of it. For you can always find people that meet their criteria who don't convert, or those who don't meet their criteria who do convert. And what do they do with that? In other words, if you critique the critics, you find their theories wanting. For example, when they proposed that the only reason someone converted was that they were going through a personal tragedy or a financial crisis or a health crisis or something like that, or maybe they were weak-minded and there was some charismatic personality that took advantage of their weak will, Uh, Some authority figure in church, the church took advantage of the weak, you hear that all the time, that religion takes advantage of the weak and that is why people get converted to religion. That does not explain why other people with the same set of factors do not convert. It does not explain why those without those factors do convert. It does not explain why religion is so persistent in the human experience in the first place. Why is there faith all over the world and in every civilization and in every time period? Why won't it go away? They don't have an answer for that. Nor does it answer why people are looking for heavenly rewards in the first place. Why would they even be looking for that? Why is there that sense inside of a human being that there must be more than this? Why is it that 90% of people around the world continue to believe in some form of a deity? They don't have answers for that. That that can't be explained simply because we came from some previous ape-like creature. It just doesn't work. If you think about it, the universities of learning don't really perceive that much about religion, and they definitely do not understand Christian conversion. It takes a spiritual mind to understand a spiritual work of God, right? So here we have the mind of Christ being revealed about conversion, and we can trust this, the revelation of God, from God's mind to our mind, His story of what happens in conversion, told right here. And it's just basically this, genuine Christian conversion is initiated by God, and it results in a complete change of the direction in a person's life, a life from then on, is lived in service to Jesus and unto the glory of God. You see? Now, if you want that put in a doctrinal formulated kind of way, here's Dr. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology saying, what is conversion? I'll quote, conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. The word conversion itself means turning. Here it represents a spiritual turn, a turning from sin to Christ. The turning from sin is called repentance, and the turning to Christ is called faith. That's why repentance and faith are always happening exactly the same time. You turn away from a previous false god or a life of sin, and you turn toward, place your faith in Christ. That You take repentance and faith that work together, the two sides of the same coin, and you have biblical conversion. If you want a longer explanation, here's one from Ligonier Ministry, a fantastic article online called, What is True Conversion? And I have a longer quote for you here. Conversion is a dramatic turning away from one path in order to pursue an entirely new one. Conversion also involves the idea of changing direction. A true spiritual conversion radically alters the direction of one's life. It is not a partial change wherein one is able to straddle the fence between two worlds. It is not a superficial turning, a mere rearranging of the outward facade of a person's life. 
Conversion is not a gradual change that occurs over a period of time like sanctification. Instead, a genuine conversion occurs much deeper within the soul of a person. It is a decisive break with old patterns of sin and the world and the embracing of new life in Christ by faith. Isn't that a beautiful description? Some people want just a slight little adjustment and they call it conversion, no good. The article goes on with some more thoughts. I want to read it to you. This spiritual conversion is so profound that it involves many changes in a person. It involves a change of mind, which is an intellectual change, and a change of view, a new recognition of God, self, sin, and Christ. It involves a change of affections, which is an emotional change, a change of feeling, a sorrow for sin committed against a holy and a just God. It involves a change of the will, which is a volitional change, an intentional turning away from sin and a turning to God through Christ to seek forgiveness. The entire person, mind, affections, and will is radically, completely, and fully changed in conversion. Is that you? Was that you at your conversion time? Now, one caveat I want to put in there, one clarification for you, and Dr. MacArthur says this all the time, the proof that you are converted or that you are saved is not in the perfection of your life, but it is in the changed direction of your life. In other words, this is the way I was living, the old Tom. When I got saved, I began living this direction, but I didn't take too many steps along that pathway. I began to take those steps, and I began to pursue Christ, but there was still a lot of sin and stumbling and trouble that was going there. So, but I still can have the assurance of my conversion and the assurance of my relationship with Jesus and salvation because my direction has changed. Do you see that? I'm now walking in that direction, and that's a long, long walk. That's a long hike up a steep hill wherein God refines us over and over and over again. And it takes time. So don't say, well, I'm not as perfect as another person, therefore I didn't have a conversion. Just ask yourself, was the direction of my life radically changed? Now, if you grew up in a Christian home, you might say, but we kind of were taught to think this way and speak this way and act this way from the time that I was a kid in a Christian home, and I didn't really see that much dramatically change. You'll have to look at your attitudes. You know, where you wanted to beat up your little sister and then now you want to do nice things for your little sister. That's the radical change that has to happen within you. There are attitudes. You're still coming to church. You're still coming to church, still memorizing verses, still memorizing verses. Some of those things outwardly are the same, but there's a change inside of you. And therefore, you know, God really worked on my heart. Now, I haven't even got to our outline yet today for the passage. So you know we're lagging here. In Paul's conversion, I want you to see three stages of conversion that are true of everybody's conversion. No matter where you came from or whatever, no matter how fast or dramatic the conversion was, there's always three stages of genuine conversion. We're only going to have time for the first one today. So I'm only going to give you the first one today. You'll have to listen for the others. First stage is the original life. Look back at verses 1 and 2, if you would. First stage is the original life, verses 1 and 2. Now... Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound, that is arrested, to Jerusalem. You cannot understand a conversion until you understand the original life or the original condition of the convert. And you could sum up Saul's precondition as open hostility toward Christianity. In fact, Saul exhibits his hostility in three ways, and this is sort of an outline within an outline. There's three ways that Saul showed his hostility in his, in his original life. The first way is that he just expressed his hostility in a public or open fashion towards Christians. It says, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This was going on openly. Now, I want to back up and give a little bit of background about Saul himself so we can understand this man. He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, right? 
He has, he, most of the book of Acts is about Paul. This is a man we need to understand, so let's get a little background about him. Saul grew up in a city called Tarsus and was there from birth. A Roman citizen, born a Roman citizen, according to Acts chapter 25 and verse 10. Tarsus is in modern-day Turkey. It's to the northwest of the nation of Israel. The city stood on the river Sidnus, or some say Kidnus, a fortified city about 10 miles from the Mediterranean coast, kind of up the river. Tarsus was the capital of the province of Cilicia, according to Acts chapter 22 and verse 3. Cilicia, as a province, was composed of two main areas. There was the fertile plain, which was next to the Mediterranean coast, and then as you went further inland, there were the rugged mountain lands. Originally, it flourished under the Hittite civilization. This is going way back into B.C. days. And then there were a a group of people called the Sea People that conquered it. Later, it was ruled by the Assyrians and then was ruled by the Persians. But in 333 B.C., Alexander the Great won his decisive battle over the Persians near in a a place called Issus. After Alexander died, he didn't live that long. It was then ruled by how his empire was broken up. It was ruled by the Seleucids. It eventually came under the control of the Romans, as the whole world in New Testament time is basically under the control of the Romans. As a city near the coast, it was known for trade. It enjoyed extensive trade in a number of merchant areas. They were well supplied because of uh, the access from the river to the Mediterranean Sea and wherever the ships would go. And they also were well supplied with lumber in the mountains behind them, and so they traded lumber. The Ancient History Encyclopedia Online notes this about Tarsus. The port at Tarsus, which had always been among the most lucrative became even busier under Roman administration, and the city grew in wealth and opulence. It was not only a trade center, but the Roman administrative center for the region, and no expense was spared in creating temples, parks, and public baths. In other words, this was a significant city. As a merchant city, it also had citizens that spoke with a variety of languages from around the world, and it was an education center as well. The city was also strategic in that it formed the gateway to go deeper into the inland provinces. If you wanted to get to any of those cities and those provinces, you came through Tarsus. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 39, Paul, when he's making one of his defenses, describes his hometown of Tarsus as, quote, no insignificant city. In other words, it was well known. What a fitting place for the apostle to the Gentiles to be born and to be raised. Paul, you know, was a lover of cities. He loved the opportunities that cities bring. He was well aware of the pagan and mystery religions that he saw growing up in Tarsus. He knew that cities were centers of learning, centers of communication and commerce, Indeed, Paul would use cities as a strategy to launch Christianity throughout the Gentile world. Here we can learn a lesson for ourselves, and that is that even in your unsaved days, God uses your experiences to prepare you for whatever He has in store for you when you become a Christian and become converted and serve Him. Because of God's providence, no experience you had in the past is completely wasted. Some people are worried because they didn't get converted until they were 40 or 50 or 60, but God can use your pre-Christian life now and those experiences, for he did that very thing with Saul. Here in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 9, Saul is described as a young man. That means he was in his 20s or somewhere around the age of 30. And that means that he was likely just a little bit younger than Jesus himself. Think of that, by the way. When Jesus was growing up in Nazareth, Saul was growing up in Cilicia. In the book called The Life of St. Paul by James Stalker, he compares the two and he says, he writes this, they seemed likely to have totally diverse careers. Yet by the mysterious arrangement of providence, these two lives, Jesus and Paul, 
like streams flowing from opposite watersheds, were one day as river and tributary to mingle together. Indeed, Paul became the greatest apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. At some time, Saul's father made a decision, and that was for him to send Saul to Jerusalem to be trained under a very famous rabbi named, and we've already heard his name in Acts, Gamaliel. We glean this truth from Acts chapter 22 and verse 3. This training that Paul received, he described as strict. That's the word he used in Acts chapter 26 and verse 5. He says he was trained in the strictest sect of our religion. Again, Dr. Stocker writes this, Gamaliel was called by his contemporaries the beauty of the law and is still remembered among the Jews as the great rabbi. He was a man of lofty character and enlightened mind. The course of instruction which a rabbi had to undergo was lengthened and peculiar. It consisted entirely of the study of the scriptures and the comments of the sages and the masters upon the scriptures. The words of scripture and the sayings of the wise were committed to memory. Discussions were carried on about disputed points and by a rapid fire of questions which the scholars were allowed to put as well as the masters, the wits of the students were sharpened and their views were enlarged. In other words, Saul had thrown at him all kinds of questions about the law from men who were extremely experienced in the law. With such strict and intense training, Paul was adept with the use of the law and with the use of debate and reasoning. And with that, he was able to go to the synagogues and he was able to teach in any synagogue and bring to bear the meaning of the law. Indeed, Saul's training led him to want to become a Pharisee. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 5, it states that Saul lived as a Pharisee and practiced the law of Moses. Now, you know the Pharisees stressed living strictly according to the law. And of course, they let their pride get in the way and they started adding other rules on top of God's rules. And um, so their heart wasn't always right. And Jesus rebuked a lot of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But you need to understand if you were a Jew in the first century, the Pharisees were very highly esteemed as the people that took the Bible and tried to live by the Bible the closest that they could. That's how people viewed them, very, very respectful people. So it was Saul's ardent belief that he had to achieve his own righteousness, that he had to live righteously, that he had to put forth every effort that he could do to live a righteous life according to the law of Moses, that he needed to press on beyond his contemporaries and do a better job at living that way than anybody else. His zeal for the law extended to the purity of his own nation. It wasn't good enough that he had righteousness. He had to make sure that his nation had righteousness as well. The Pharisees believed that only when the law was completely kept by the nation of Israel would the Messiah ever arrive. And so he wanted the nation of Israel to hold fast to the law of God. Clearly, this was a deeply religious man before he met Christ. He was from a deeply religious family which sent him to study under Gamaliel. His father had been part of what was called the Jewish diaspora, those who Jews that lived away from Israel and were scattered among the Gentiles and had to carve out a living for themselves and keep the purity of their religion and not be contaminated by the Jewish pagan religions. And this family had done that. They had lived in Tarsus and they had remained separate and they had not blended with the culture and they had lived for the law of Moses. And so religious was this family that his father decided that Saul should not be a merchant. I mean, the opportunities for being a merchant in Tarsus were great. He could have lived with a lucrative career there. But rather, he saw something keen in the mind of his son and he decided he was going to send him to the Holy Land and to study under that great that great rabbi named Gamaliel. Of course, before he sent him off to study the law, he wanted his son to learn a trade, as most boys would do. And so in Tarsus, it was known for fine goat hair, and that was used to make a number of things, including quality tents. And so Saul learned to make tents for a living, and that also would be something that God would use in his missionary travels. After being trained... Saul ended up being more than an average Pharisee. He went beyond the normal. He was described as being zealous for the ancestral traditions of his people, Acts chapter 22 and verse 3 and Acts chapter 26 and verse 5. 
In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14, he describes his own progress that he was making at this time. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. I mean, this guy was all in. In Philippians 3, 5, he was itemizing his old religious credentials. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the nation of the Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. Wow! Of course, you know, he went on to say, all of that I count as dog do. The word's actually worse than that, but I can't say it, compared with knowing Christ. So just keep that in mind. But this is the old Saul. This is the unconverted Saul. Before we can appreciate how radical the conversion of Saul was, we have to really understand the intensity of his contrary belief before conversion. There are people today, we say they'll never get converted to Christianity. That's what someone said about me just a few weeks before I got saved. Man, you never know. Saul was set apart on the eighth day for God. He was no proselyte that entered into the Jewish religion. No, he was born a Jew and not just a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the more honored tribes. In fact, he probably got his name from the first king of Israel whose name was what? Saul, right? And he was no Hellenistic Jew either that took on some of the Greek culture and spoke the Greek language. No, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. No compromises with his family. A purist. No one would have thought that Paul was a good candidate to become a Christian, much less the next apostle. Got to be nuts if you were thinking that way. Again, that's a lesson for us. Never conclude that someone who is speaking violently against Christianity will never become a Christian. It might just be God setting up, setting them up to display the power of his grace and his mercy, right? God is sovereign in salvation. Thus we see Saul, the dedicated Pharisee, emerge in the book of Acts with the stoning of Stephen, the loyal disciple of Jesus, hostile to any believer in Jesus, particularly those who would preach against the temple and the law. Now, some have scratched their heads and wondered, if Saul was so zealous for the law and so against the Christian faith, where was he before the stoning of Stephen? That's a good question. It's likely that after he received his training under Gamaliel, as happened to many of the up-and-coming rabbis, that he was given a post and he was shipped to that post, and he had to serve as a rabbi in some needed area, in some synagogue, in the diaspora of Judaism, some other location where he was needed. It's speculated that while John the Baptist was having his ministry that impacted the entire nation, and while Jesus then came along after John the Baptist and had his incredible ministry, Paul was not in the land of Israel, but was sent back to Cilicia or some other needed area where he would serve as a rabbi. Something, though, brought Saul back to Jerusalem. That's not hard to imagine. After all, Jerusalem was the center of Jewish religious gravity. Sooner or later, everyone made their way back to Jerusalem. Here, Saul faced, to his chagrin, the rise of a movement called at that time not Christianity, but the way. The way? We already had the way. It was the way of Moses. What's this new way? Some sect of Jews following some so-called Messiah. From Nazareth? Are you kidding? That outpost in Galilee? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember? And his, in his extraordinary pharisaical zeal, it launched him immediately into open hostility to the movement. Dr. F.F. F. Bruce, the great scholar in his book, Apostle of the Heart Set Free, a fantastic book on the life of Saul, by the way, he writes this, Gamaliel might counsel patience in moderation against the Christians, 
But as Paul viewed the situation, it was too serious for such temporizing measures. If Stephen saw the logic of the situation more clearly than the apostles did, Paul saw it more clearly than Gamaliel did. In the eyes of Stephen and Paul alike, the new order and the old were incompatible. If Stephen argued, the new has come, therefore the old must go, Paul, for his part, argued, the old must stay, therefore the new must go. Hence the uncompromising rigor with which he threw himself into the work of repression. To his mind, this new movement posed a more deadly threat to all that he had learned and he held dear. He goes on, here was a malignant growth which called for drastic surgery. The defense of all that made life worthy living for Paul was a cause which engaged all the zeal and energy of which he was capable. When the chief priests and their associates launched their attack on the disciples, Paul came forward as an eager lieutenant. Send me. I'll do it. Notice the hostile description in verse 1. Yes, we're still in verse 1. Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Breathing is the verb epneo, empneo, and it's really the only time that this verb is used in the New Testament. And it just indicates a highly hostile posture toward the church of Jesus. You could just see him just, just hovering over and breathing threats. Murder, by the way, shows that the imprisonment was meant to result in the death of the heretics as Saul saw them. He may not have been the executioner himself, but he certainly was the arresting officer, and he was still the church's public enemy, number one. Saul had become a violent man. Second, Saul expressed his hostility by engaging in official persecution. Not just open hostility, but official persecution. Notice, he went to the high priest, the end of verse 1 and verse 2, and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. Now, the high priest was probably still Caiaphas at this time, you know, a terribly evil and unjust man. There is some debate as to what jurisdiction the high priest would have in Jerusalem over all of the synagogues outside of Israel as Damascus was. However, we certainly know the high priest would have a lot of clout and influence over them. No one can doubt that. Saul requested official papers from Caiaphas. These papers would have requested or demanded cooperation from the synagogue officials. Work with us. Help us find them. We want to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. So he's basically asking for the right of extradition. By the way, in the time period previous to the New Testament, the Maccabean time, there is a precedent for this very action in 1 Maccabees chapter 15 and verses 16 to 21. There it records a request for a certain men to be handed over to the delegation that was representing the high priest so that they would be arrested. So this kind of thing has happened before and there's precedent in Judaism for it. To arrest these believers, he had to travel all the way to Damascus. Damascus was one of the self-governing cities of what was called the Decapolis in the Roman province of Syria. Decapolis means the ten cities. It was about 135 miles from Jerusalem, and it was on the verge of the Syrian desert. It was also about 60 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, but it was situated in a very rich agricultural area, and it was engaged in a lot of trade and commerce as well, just like Tarsus was. In fact, Damascus was the largest commercial center on the road between Mesopotamia and the land of Egypt. Clinton Arnold in the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary writes, all Jews traveling from Babylon to Jerusalem would have passed through Damascus. It was a large city, and there is evidence from archaeology that there were indeed Jewish synagogues, not one but many as it says here, plural. Additionally, we know from history that a large number of Jews were massacred in Damascus in the year 66 A.D. by the Romans. So there were a lot of Jews in Damascus. Today, by the way, the ancient city is buried under the modern city, and the modern city is still there, and it's a, it's a very large city of some 1.5, over 1.5 million people. Damascus was one of the places that believers in Jesus had fled from Jerusalem when the persecution broke out in that city. So Saul's intent simply was to pursue them there. 
And if he had any intel that there were some there, his intel was correct. Yes, there were Jewish members of the way in Damascus. So now he engaged in official persecution. See, sometimes persecution comes from people that just make fun of you. They just ridicule you. They just make life at your job or employment a little bit difficult. But official persecution is different. It is when the state comes up with a law and then systematically begins to persecute Christians. That's what we're concerned with here as the church in the United States of America, that that that's something that is looming on the edge from those that call themselves progressives, although what they're attempting to do is not progressive at all. And they're trying to continue to push the United States government into laws and ways of looking at things that will make churches that stand for biblical morality against the law. And make no mistake about it, it is coming from the progressive side. And that's what we're concerned with, that we're going to get official persecution. Well, that's what was happening here, official persecution, where they had the right and the might of the state to oppress the church of Jesus Christ. Well, third, Saul's hostility boiled over into an ardent pursuit of believers as well. Notice the last part of verse 2. So that if he found any belonging to the way, notice no mercy for women, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, bind them, tear them from their homes, and bring them to Jerusalem. That's what he wanted to do. Not just open hostility, not just official persecution, but then going and pursuing them wherever they went, chasing after them. Some some might have wanted to persecute believers that were just right around them. Saul was not satisfied with that. He had to get up, get on his horse or whatever he traveled on, and go and pursue the believers wherever they were. I mean, you don't get more intense than this. He went after them to persecute them. This really brings the expression of the unconverted Paul to its climax. He was hunting the disciples of the Lord. He was out there looking for them. He exerted incredible effort and zeal to trace them down. He probably had spies and intel, get me information, where are they? Get these believers who belong to the way. By the way, why that name? the way. It shows that the early believers made clear that though they remained Jews, they were a distinct group within Judaism, and they were pointing the rest of the nation to follow the way. Where'd they get that from? Probably from Jesus, right? On the night that he was betrayed, and Philip said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And he said to them, what? I am the way. No one gets to the Father except through me. Later in Acts chapter 18 and 26, this name stuck. Priscilla and Aquila had to explain to Apollos, quote, the way of God more accurately. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, Christianity is called a new and living way. And so Paul pursued them. He pursued them to bring them bound to Jerusalem. There was, as I said, no mercy to the women. Bind them, bring them. Ladies, you will be persecuted just like men if persecution breaks out. So we see there's no mercy for women, not just for men, but for any that would name the name of Christ. What Saul did was plan to kick in the doors, bind them, and forcibly drag them with a death penalty hanging over their necks, over their heads, to Jerusalem. The severity of this persecution must not be missed, nor the ugliness of an unconverted Saul. There is no question that he wanted to do much more than just harass the church. He wanted to eradicate the church. Saul was not the kind of man to give up. He was dogged in his determination. He believed himself to be in the very spirit of the Maccabean revolts of old who had fought violently against Greek influence on Judaism and pagan intrusion into the worship of the true God in the land of Israel, in the intertestamental times. And so he saw himself having the zeal of the Maccabees, such as in 1 Maccabees chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. In other words, brothers and sisters in Christ, Saul exemplified religion at its worst. People so confident 
in their false religion. They think they're doing something positive for God by attacking and hurting people. Beloved, zeal in religion must come from light, not from heat. How dangerous a young man can be who has some truth but hasn't been balanced and trained and honed by that truth over a period of time and now he does more damage and hurt to the congregations than even someone on the outside. Zeal without knowledge is harmful in religion. Later, Saul would reflect back on this time in his life and he would write how incredibly wrong he was. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he said, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. He knew what he was. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he said, For I am the least of all the apostles. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle. Why not? Because I persecuted the church of God. My, the grace of God. My, the mercy of God. You think that your sin disqualifies you from standing up and serving God in some significant way? Brother or sister, you do not know the power and the grace of God. Quit doubting your God and what He can do in your life. Galatians 1.13, he wrote, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. There it is. This is the ugly, unconverted Saul, hostile to the gospel, ignorant of truth, out of touch with the working of the Spirit of God yet supremely religious and dedicated. Many there are who are religious who need to be converted. Sometimes there's more evangelism that needs to be done in the churches than anywhere else. Maybe that evangelism needs to start with you. Maybe you're not converted. Maybe you're just going through the motions. Maybe you're just relying on some feeling you had when you were younger, but there is no life change in you. If there's no life change in you, don't kid yourself. You're not a Christian. You're not one of Jesus's. And it would be much better to be embarrassed with that fact and confront that fact now and say that to somebody like me than it would be on Judgment Day to go up to the Lord Jesus and say the words of Matthew 7, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name and in your name perform many miracles and prophesy in your name? And what would the Lord Jesus say to those false converts? Depart from me. Go away from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Your life has to change. It's not how perfectly your life has changed. It's the direction of your life change, right? But it has to change. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, the change in the life the actual conversion that happens. Stage two of the three stages. We'll get to that next week. Hang in there and read the passage. Pray and think on your own self. Let's pray and get ready for the baptismal ceremony. Father in heaven, thank you that every baptismal ceremony shares how you converted somebody. Whether they were a child that grew up in this church or whether they were just really rebellious people or whether they were subtly rebellious, you changed their lives. Thank you for this dramatic example of conversion and for this great text, and thank you for teaching us from your word this day. Please help anybody in here that's not sure they're converted to come and talk to one of us today and be sure of that. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.